Charles Leclerc is a winner for the first time in three months after dominating the race on Red Bull's home turf at the Austrian Grand Prix. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato and this is round 11, the Austrian Grand Prix, powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. Charles Leclerc said he definitely needed that one after fending off Max Verstappen for victory at the Red Bull Ring. It was a win as unexpected as it was fundamentally dominant. Verstappen had taken pole and run away with the sprint, but on Sunday's Grand Prix, the Ferrari came alive, and the Dutchman was simply no match for Leclerc on any tyre in any stint. It was an almost perfect day for Ferrari too, with Carlos Sainz set to make it a 1-2 before his power unit spectacularly failed on the closing laps of the race. It injected a little bit of jeopardy into the final stint, but Leclerc was never really in doubt to finally strike back in the championship fight. To debrief the memorable Austrian Grand Prix in which Ferrari got its title ambitions back on track, or did it, I'm joined by Scott Mitchell from The Race. Scott, welcome to the Strategy Report. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. This feels like Ferrari's first win in ages, which of course it isn't. They won only last week with Carlos Sainz, and that's maybe its own sort of topic of discussion anyway. But it, it sort of won this in a very different way, didn't it? I mean, it won it, with, won it by making the right calls. It had the quickest car on Sunday. It sort of was the, the kind of confident win they've been missing for quite a long time. Was that as important, do you think, in the overall grand scheme of things as the relatively small number of points they did or Leclerc made up on Verstappen this weekend? Well, yeah, because I think uh, I think this was the first proper win that they've had in a long time, isn't it? They actually beat Red Bull on merit. They, as you say, they 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 won it by kind of being the best team and, and doing the best job. And we, I, I, Ferrari, haven't been that for a really like, probably since Leclerc won in Australia, mm-hmm. and that, that that's why they went on this barren streak and obviously they only won at Silverstone because Carlos Sainz basically said guys stop it pack it in and pull, pulled rank basically and just went I'm just going to be chief strategist for a little while you guys go just like play on your phones for a bit I'll, I'll take care of this whereas this was this was actually proper this was um the car was working well um they had in a good place they they got the right compromise on setup they 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 knew what they could do with the 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 tires they were arguably even aggressive on strategy of how long they sort of um extended the stints for obviously i think Charles had to pass max was it three times on yeah. on on track so you, and then manage that throttle problem at the end so even when ferrari's brilliant they still don't do it the easy way <laughs> um but i think this was super important the, the thing i noticed after the race was um I, I just could not believe this was only leclerc's fifth win in formula one oh, like no. it's just that's just mad he's got 15 poles yeah. and five wins it feels like he should have five wins this season yeah so how's <laughs> how's he only got how's he only got the five so i just think like i think across the board for him for the team psychologically everything this was uh, they had to do it this way because it's just a much bigger confidence boost i think than you know, like scraping through and, and sneaking a win through lucky circumstances or something like that. Some great stats there. Con- contrasting, and this is the other one that shocked me in the last month, I guess, as combined, was uh, Verstappen beating Vettel's podium tally for Red Bull in Azerbaijan, I think it was. And then this weekend, equaling Mark Webber as the longest tenured Red Bull racing driver. And I don't understand how those numbers add up. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, Max is... Max is just a bit of a freak of nature now, isn't yeah. he? I think he's already well inside the top 10 for all-time wins in F1 history, which is just 
is so scary. Whereas poor Charles is, I mean, <laughs> all respect to them, but he, he's down there with like your, your, your Keke Rosbergs and people <laughs> like that, that had the occasional win over sort of 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. That's where like Leclerc's company is in the, the list of all time greats. But I think it's because we just forget that, you know, Max has been around for, what is it? Like, is this his eighth season in Formula One? Which is just insane. Like he's now, he's not, he's simultaneously an established top level Grand Prix driver, but he's also still part of the next generation, which is, I mean, as someone, I'm turning 30 this week and I, that, the guy gets under my skin so much for that reason alone. Like it's just, it's absurd to me how much he's achieved at such a young age. I feel like I'm coming up to the hill now. Um, and this guy's still absolutely cracking on setting new records. So he's um, yeah, a freak of nature. And um, well, he's going to be like, I know Seb's won those titles, but Max has got to be the greatest Red Bull driver now in, 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 in history. Um, I I I kind of feel bad because I feel like those four straight titles should like guarantee Seb this place mm. in the Red Bull Hall of Fame forever. And he is obviously still there, but Max is the Red Bull driver, isn't he? So I, and honestly, the way we're going, he probably going to be a two-time world champion at the end of this season and he'll get another <laughs> two, won't he, before he retires? Because that's the thing, he's probably still got another 10 years to go at least. So it's yeah, it's just mad. It's incredible to think he might be already, you know, effectively, depending on how dire we want to be about the season, halfway <laughs> to Vettel's championship tally. But oh, yeah. maybe let's save that one for later in the year. <laughs> just touch some wood yeah. for now. People still keep keep watching, guys. Yeah. Keep keep watching. Keep listening. There, there is a season to be had here. We're not trying to we're not trying to kill it off now. <laughs> not just yet. We're still going. God, only just halfway. Jeez, settle down, everyone. <laughs> The story of this weekend, or rather the story coming into this weekend was, of course, this was the second of the three sprints. That was what was really going to define how the Austrian Grand Prix was going to pan out. We're expecting even more next year, so maybe keep that in mind, uh, keep that in mind as we sort of talk about the, the next couple of points and, and how that's affected the course of the weekend. I thought what was really interesting, though, before we sort of talk about how maybe that lack of practice affected some of the results, because that is one of the big material changes of the sprint format, was that at the end of the sprint, with Leclerc having been defeated by Max Verstappen, he seemed extremely confident that he wouldn't be on Sunday, despite you know seemingly looking at those performance gaps. They're not being that much to kind of support it. He'd spent most of the race battling with Carlos Sainz rather than getting any Max Verstappen. What was it that had him so convinced? And is it just convenient to say in the aftermath that he was right all along? Yeah, there's an element there of just being like, don't worry. No, I, I had it under control the whole, don't worry, guys. I knew what was going on. But um, I honestly think Shah was probably one of the only people that felt that way after the sprint. But mm-hmm. I was speaking to someone from the signs camp on Sunday before the race and um, Carlos had been baffled in the sprint because they'd kind of agreed at the start that they would just go after Max and it was meant to be, the tyres would easily, the mediums would easily do the, the the sprint distance and you'd be able to push. You didn't have to worry really about, you know, the front tyre opening up or rear thermal deg or, or, or all of the nonsense that comes with racing with Pirellis. <laughs> um, and it was, it was meant to just be crack on, see if we can get him because there's two of us. But Leclerc was sort of, I mean, he was gapped by Max pretty quickly at the start of that sprint. Max put like a couple of seconds on them and and immediately had it under control. And Carlos was so confused by this. That's why he was attacking Charles because he was like, well, what are we doing? I've got so much more pace than this. I want to get on with it. But what Leclerc was doing was um, saving the tyres, 
t- partly it was a partly short term thing. He wanted to see if he could come back at max at the end of the sprint. So there was an element there of seeing like right, okay, well if I just you know forfeit a little bit now, then if the tires do fall away, I can come back at him. But if they don't fall away, I know how much more I've got in these and how much more I can push. And I'm I'm pretty sure that informed the way he then attacked the first stint of the, the, the Grand Prix and also gave him confidence that actually for the entire Grand Prix, the tyres would go with him. Like he would be able to push and he wouldn't really have to stress about whether or not those tyres are going to hang on because that has been the Ferrari's Achilles heel has just been, it's just been that little bit more aggressive, especially on the fronts. But because the Red Bull Ring is a rear limited track, that wasn't really uh, an issue. But they also had the rears under control. So I think it was, I don't think they expected Red Bull to come back to them on the Sunday, because I think that did happen. I think, I don't know whether it was, you know, the, there was loads of rain overnight on mm-hmm. Saturday to Sunday, and Sunday morning driving into the track, it was absolutely throwing it down. Uh, before the F3 race first thing. So the track could have been quite green and that could have maybe moved it away from Red Bull and back towards Ferrari as well. So I don't know if Leclerc was going, oh yeah, we we got these guys on toast. They've got no (laughs) chance. But I think it was more sort of confidence in how he could run his own race and how Ferrari would handle the tyres that just meant that he, and arguably he alone, did think, I've got a chance of winning this Grand Prix. For the second time, maybe in two races, drivers almost in a fundamental way pulling rank. <laughs> Carlos Sainz and Silverstone, and then this race is the only one who could see it all coming yeah. together so nicely on Sunday. There's obviously a lot for Ferrari to celebrate this weekend, the last two weekends, of course. Maybe now they'll reflect more positively on Silverstone and Leclerc having got that win under his belt now as well. But just to go back a step, that, that sprint race, the squabbling with Carlos Sainz, you mentioned it there, there seemed to be sort of a fundamental miscommunication. There were some other relatively minor problems that cropped up over the course of the weekend. Is this still... I mean, are you surprised that there wasn't greater communication given that it feels like there's quite a lot at stake coming into this weekend in championship sense, in the morale sense, that this is still a problem? Surprised in an F1 context. (laughs) Not surprised from a Ferrari context. Um, There's there's such a feeling that Ferrari for, I don't know, maybe a decade or so, maybe even longer... They really, really do not like having to do team orders or anything approaching a team order. And it's almost like, I mean, it was funny, obviously, the, this sprint race thing happened in Austria of all places, mm. you know, 20 years on from Schumacher and Barrichello and arguably the dawn of uh, Ferrari's um, hesitance with team orders because they know the absolute, you know, murdering that they'll get as a result of it. Uh, the they just wait and see if it sort of solves itself. They they don't want to intervene if they don't have to, and they're kind of just like, let's just see. This this might be all okay. <laughs> they might and and it just doesn't work. We Massa and Alonso, um, Raikkonen and Vettel, uh, Vettel and Leclerc, now Leclerc and Signs. It, it's a pattern. It's there all the time. They don't really want to be emphatic with their team communications. Then when they try and get a bit forceful. They don't really do it in a clear enough way. Um, I know, obviously, in this specific instant, we're talking about the sprint, but actually just going back to Silverstone, that was such a good example of it where, you know, Leclerc's basically saying, let me go, I'm faster. And he's being told, yeah, we're telling Signs to, to, to hold up. He's been told to do this lap time. And then they're telling Signs, who's like three temps off that lap time, yep, your pace is good. And it's like, well, what, what are you doing? Like, how, how hard is this to, to do this properly? 
Um, and then I think in the sprint, it was just a case of didn't want to intervene at all because it's a sprint race. There's not much. Um, there, there, there's not a great deal to lose, I suppose. Um, and you kind of had this idea of let's just crack on and go after Max. Charles isn't really doing that. Carlos looks quite quick. Let's let him attack and see what he can do. But you just you just kind of want to get everyone together in Ferrari and like bash some heads together because it's just like guys, come on! Like Charles, he's he's missed a good opportunity at Silverstone because of the way you do this. Um, but he did at least like pull a few points back on Max. And here we have a sprint weekend where there's even more points available. Max is disappearing up the road and you're still squabbling amongst yourselves instead of putting everything you can into beating Max. So I don't really understand it. Um, I can just see that there is this hesitance there. And they've got to sort it out and actually take this a little bit more into their own hands, be more proactive with it because... Red Bull is a one-driver team in terms of their championship ambitions. They can say all they want about Checo being allowed to fight for wins and titles. He's there to be Max's rear gunner. And Ferrari are a slightly weaker organisation than Red Bull at the moment, and they're splitting their efforts across two drivers. How do you overturn what is Max's advantage now, around 40 points? How do you overturn that if you're infighting and you're going to be letting your drivers take points off one another while the championship leader is the subject of all of Red Bull's attentions. <laughs> it is, and it's a good, it's a good uh, parallel to have drawn, I think, with Austria 20 years ago now, because you can't help but feel like there's something being born there, isn't there? And we're still seeing the echoes of that, well beyond people just watching the highlights on YouTube. The material difference in, in terms of the format and the echo of it throughout the weekend is that, that lack of practice time. It's condensed from three hours down to one hour on Friday morning, so not even necessarily at a representative time. Then we go straight into qualifying. Now, there are a couple of reasons. You've sort of touched on some already as to why the competitive picture may be so different from Friday to the Sunday of this Grand Prix, one of them, of course, being the track conditions because the rain on Sunday morning. But looking at Red Bull's performance in particular, because even they seemed quite surprised at the way that car was behaving on Sunday. How likely do you think it is that had this been a more normal weekend, a regular format Grand Prix, that we may not have had something as unusual as this? Because it did just seem that they, it took them completely by surprise, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very good point. I wonder if, um, because obviously yeah, you're trying to do everything in FP1 that you would normally do over P1 and then especially in FP2, yeah. um, and even FP3 as well, because you've got to lock in that setup before qualifying you, you you go from that three hours in down to just 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 the fp1 session which is an absolute nightmare for for the engineers um so you could argue that with with that extra track time with the proper long runs that you would have done in fp3 with the track evolution you would have then seen uh, sorry you would do so you would do your long runs in fp2 and your qualifying sims in FP2, but then you'd have the track evolution into FP3 on the Saturday, so you'd be able to see how that fared. Maybe Red Bull would have noticed something in the long run data and gone, oh, actually, we're a little bit um, vulnerable here. Maybe we need to make this change to the setup, blah, blah, blah. There we go, now we're sorted. Because we've seen that a couple of times this year where they've been a little bit lost on the Friday. They haven't quite got the car in the sweet spot, but then they come out on Saturday and actually it's a much stronger package. Um, the reason I, the reason I doubt whether that actually was the case here is that they were fine in the sprint. There, there was no indication from the sprint, it seemed, within Red Bull, that this problem would arise. So 
that brings me back to what I was saying about the um, the track being green and and being washed by by the rain on the Saturday night. I just wonder if that maybe a combination of um, that and some ambient and track temperature stuff just moved the um, the parameters that everyone was dealing with, and the Ferrari was still within a window that worked, but the Red Bull had just been moved out of it a, a little bit because it just seemed that you know if we take the sprint race is effectively like the first stint of a Grand Prix now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But Max's sprint race was so much more competitive than the first stint of his Grand Prix and actually any stint of his Grand Prix. So maybe they would have spotted something, but this is kind of the beauty of when it apps, the heavens open and you have just like just persistent massive rain. It's a lovely reset for Sunday. Um, sometimes it doesn't really make much of a difference, but... That, that could honestly be what made the difference here because that you, you touched on it as well. Red Bull kind of had no real reason or explanation for it at the end of Sunday. So something happened to catch them out, I think. So which which suggests that maybe they didn't have the answer there earlier in the weekend because earlier in the weekend there was nothing to answer. It's almost a little bit reminiscent of the Australian Grand Prix, albeit the opposite circumstance. The track gripped up being new so dramatically that it kind of caught Red Bull out there. They suffered a lot with the front tyres and as a result were really uncompetitive. You can kind of make the opposite comparison here, I guess. Track completely lost the rubber that had been laid down. Lo and behold, a little bit out of the window. So maybe that'll become a trend. Who's to say? This is also, and you touched on it earlier, I think, this is, a, I mean, first of all, the first proper Ferrari win we can almost say for a very long time. But it also struck me that it, arguably since the Canadian Grand Prix, but that was Science and, and Verstappen and circumstances were a bit weird about that one as well. But the first really good comparison between these two teams, and certainly between Leclerc and Verstappen, because we've had all sorts of circumstances interrupt all of the races since then, whether it's strategy or unreliability or, or, or other stuff. We're now halfway through the season. We know the Red Bull ring pretty well. Where are we at with understanding these cars' strengths and weaknesses relative to one another? Because we're already, okay, Red Bull sort of out of sorts this weekend, but there was still a lot to be gleaned maybe up until the way that race panned out. Yeah, so the 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 Red Bull over the course of the season, the trend has been that it is a bit more punchy in a straight line. Um, I think that's partly down to the different, uh, the different strengths of the respective power units. I think the Ferrari's got particularly strong deployment and traction so it's very strong off of a corner but then the Red Bull comes back at the Ferrari over the course of uh, of a straight so uh, Red, uh, the Red Bull ring for example then I think the Red Bull would have been particularly strong sort of on the run up the hill for example um, but then the Ferrari would have been very good off of turn three um, and then the traction off of some of the, the, the slower speed corners but that's why I kind of felt that on paper it suited Red Bull so much because with the exception of turn three at the top of the hill, which is obviously an ultra slow corner, it kind of felt like a like a ripple track. Um, there wasn't really these slow speed traction zones. Um, it was medium high speed circuit. I thought the Red Bull would go go really well there, and it and it was basically up until the Grand Prix. Um, so the main difference has tended to be, uh, it's, so I think sometimes it might be quite lazy to sort of say it's engine related because obviously we're talking about speed and and speed off of a corner and speed down the straight and it's so easy to then get bogged down in engine comparisons but obviously the car makes a a huge uh, impact on that um with the the drivability of the power unit and the, the 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 just the good mechanical grip that the car offers combines for traction but down the straight 
depending on how efficient your 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 arrow is, whether you've got a slightly lower lower drag setup, uh, especially with the rear wing, obviously goes completely hand in hand with your power unit to define your top speed. And it's been really interesting that the Red Bull and Ferrari are, are sort of coming at this from sort of different parts of the spectrum this season. Um, one thing that was interesting, and you mentioned Canada, the the rear wing that Leclerc used in Canada. It wasn't a low-drag rear wing that they just put on because he needed to come back through the field after his grid penalty. That that was effectively the the new sort of... I don't want to call it standard rear wing because it's, I don't know exactly how many different <laughs> versions Ferrari have. But it was, it was, a, it was a lower-drag version of a normal rear wing, if that makes sense. It's the rear wing that they want to use more often because they'll still get good levels of downforce from it, but it just takes a bit of drag away and it just helps a little bit more. And it's specifically been introduced, I think, to combat the straight line speed of of, of the Red Bull because I think in terms of, if you want to identify trends, if the Red Bull's in front, it's really difficult to overtake. And if the Ferrari's in front, the Red Bull should be able to overtake it quite easily. That's been one of the things. So Miami, for example, Leclerc was never going to hold on against Verstappen. Um, so here, um, whether you saw that play out with how not hard Leclerc found it to pass Verstappen, but Verstappen was able to defend up at the top of the hill, for example. the uh, I think the third and final time Leclerc passed him, Verstappen was able to defend into turn three, but then Leclerc just absolutely blitzed him on the exit and on the run down to to turn four but they they do have they do definitely have significant fundamental traits that are different to one another and just because you know they try and come back at one another in certain ways like Ferrari trying to give themselves a little bit less drag on the rear wing you're never going to completely even them up because they are different philosophies and I think that's really interesting because then you just have no idea like one circuit could suit and one car one way, small changes like perhaps we had this weekend might then completely take one car out of its window and then be an advantage for the other. So as much as sometimes you kind of wish that Formula 1 was a single-make formula so that everyone was in the same car and it was just, you know, they were going absolutely hell for leather in equal machinery battling out, I quite like it when there are different sort of strengths and weaknesses because it just adds a little bit more of an extra dynamic into the battle. Mm, and a good reason to keep watching. Good reason to keep watching for this season. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Let's move on just from this front-running battle. I want to talk about Mercedes, even if just a little briefly, because we're in a really interesting period of time for that Mercedes car. It feels like they want to hope at least that they're on the cusp of something here, having brought upgrades to Silverstone, having done in, at least in pace terms relatively well in Silverstone, even if the result was not maybe the optimal one there. It looked like, despite being a little bit hesitant arriving in Austria, that maybe they were on for a better result than they anticipated here as well. But again, they had one practice session and then both drivers binned it in qualifying. Very unusual. Is it hard to escape the conclusion that there was just overdriving going on there? And if that's the case, is that because they knew there was something there, there was more in the car, or rather that they, they didn't think there was any more in the car and they were trying to compensate for it? Yeah, I don't know. It was so weird because um, I was trying to think of... Obviously, I know everyone always focuses on Lewis in these mm-hmm. situations. Be like, oh, well, you know, when's the last, when does he crash on his own? Um, but I, I couldn't... I couldn't really remember when, like, when George has done that that either. And there are actually there are very few drivers on the grid who just bin it yeah. in 
qualifying when you think about it. So it's not even like a it's not even a Mercedes thing, mm-hmm. or you know, it's not even a specific to these drivers. It's just weird to to to, to see that, um, especially as it's like. I guess kind of similar accidents, similar profile corners as well, you know, where the mm. rear can go quite light, you're throwing it in, um, and then it just goes, and the drivers seemed completely caught out by it. Uh, I wonder if it was that the car was actually quite competitive. Hamilton in particular looked quite fast over over one lap. I think Russell was maybe lacking like a tiny bit. And I wonder if... Um, I I just wonder if that car was a, it was a combination of the car was the car was good but not great. They were chasing something that that did look quite good, and maybe they just went they just pushed a little bit too far with a car that was on the edge because that that car hasn't looked. Um, I don't want to say it hasn't looked hard to drive this season, but it hasn't been like it hasn't been, you know, threatening to 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 throw these guys into the barriers every car. It's just been kind of like a bit slow. <laughs> it's not been it's not like it's having like constant aero stalls or something like that where it gets into a corner and just sheds all of its rear downforce. So no, it was it was so strange. Um I do think I, I, I do think it was more likely to be getting a bit carried away in pursuit of something quite good. Than it was them just going. Well, I might as well take a risk because you know what is there to lose, and we 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 kind of need to do something crazy if we want to get a result out of out out of this one. But it was just so strange, and I think it, I think what summed it up was the fact that the drivers and the team didn't really have an explanation for it, and there was like, oh, well, maybe there was a bit of a you know maybe there was a bit of wind or something like that because these cars are so sensitive to it or maybe it was this just no concrete answers i'm sure when they went through the data they found something but it was um it was difficult to decipher it from the outside in the end they finished as the third best team which just seems like the mercedes standard i guess another lewis hamilton podium feels like a little bit of the fortune i guess is going his way after arguably being a little bit against him earlier in the season just behind him, though, just behind the Mercedes was Esteban Ocon's Alpine, who insisted he didn't have a quiet race in a sense he was right, but it also seemed like a relatively straightforward Alpine fourth fastest car situation at a minimum. And look, Fernando Alonso, as you know, as I know, is having one of the best seasons of his life. This is probably one of the best races of his life. Should have finished right up there, but alas, finished 10th with the pit stop problem. They're making the battle for fourth seem very one-sided with McLaren at the moment after it looking like it was probably going to be close and obviously expectations for McLaren before the season were much higher. What's making the difference as of late in this fight? Because there has been operational stuff for McLaren that seemed a little bit sloppy in the last few races, yes, but it just doesn't seem like the tight fight I think maybe we were expecting at the start of the season anymore. Yeah, um, the McLaren, I don't, I don't think the McLaren is just... Out outright performance wise, I don't think the McLaren's faster than the Alpine. I think I think the Alpine is a better car. Um, what's really encouraging for them is that as they bring new parts, they do work. And um, you'll uh, you'll remember this from from past seasons. Just the aerodynamic development from Endstone is is what held it back when it when it was Renault. Um, and what was it 2017 2018 when it got up into that sort of fourth place fight in the championship and just completely stagnated or regressed because it just it just didn't seem to be able to make a car better through the season yeah. but that's not the case this year you know they had this big upgrade at Silverstone 
which was you know the new floor and top body. Um, there were some, some su- suggestions that that had actually triggered um, a bit more aggressive porpoising than the old old design. But if it did, I mean, it's not made the car slower, and they've got on top of it pretty quickly. Um, you're right about Alonso. He's obviously the greatest driver that's ever lived as he likes to remind us every single weekend is the best drive he's ever done. Um, just as an amusing aside on, on Alonso after the sprint race where obviously he didn't even get to make the start because of this uh, electrical issue on his car. We were down at the, um, uh, the mix zone where we get to speak to some of the drivers after the sprint race in particular, but uh, sorry, after the sprint race, but then we get all of them after the Grand Prix. We're waiting for Alonso and, um, he was doing the TV round before coming over to us and I could hear him as he was going round and he's talking about how many points he's lost this season because of reliability and every time the number just creeps up slightly (laughs) so to the one person he'd lost about 40 points then it was 50 but I'm not exaggerating by the time he came to us he genuinely tried to claim he'd lost 70 points this season but then but then even he sort of went oh actually I might have gone a bit too far with that and then went maybe 60 (laughs) so that was was fantastic that was like peak Fernando um, no so you can see with what he's because I think with Esteban when everything goes right for Esteban he's really really good but Fernando's at that level in all sincerity pretty much all the time he he, he is getting a lot out of out of the car um, and the Alpine is almost like permanently a top 10 car now sometimes it's fourth fastest sometimes fifth but it's always a top 10 car the McLaren um, and obviously fans of Daniel will, will know this extremely well that McLaren is sometimes it, it's just you know it's barely barely able to get Q3 that's mm. just the reality of that car and then sometimes it's you know it's nipping on the heels of the Merc so I just I think the swings in performance for the McLaren are a lot, are a lot bigger and the reason I think is that the Alpine is quite um is quite well suited to a uh, a broader range of of circuit types because the McLaren has a couple of very specific weaknesses. Uh, it's a slightly draggier car than they want it to be. And it's also, um, I think it might be something to do with the rear suspension geometry, but it, it, it basically takes more out of the rear tyres, um, especially in higher temperatures. So higher track temps and uh, so, so yeah, higher track temps and a circuit with a lot of traction zones. Mm-hmm. Suddenly the McLaren's a lot weaker in race trim than in qualifying. Um, so there'll be some circuits there where uh, it just doesn't work as well. McLaren genuinely thinks that it has sort of broadened the operating window of that car for this season. It's just the car's working as it should. It's just depending on the circuit might exaggerate a couple of specific weaknesses. Um, so I think that's I think that's what's making the difference at the moment. But you did mention the operations and McLaren did drop the ball. In, in, in Austria. It might not necessarily have been entirely on their side. Norris had that power unit problem in, in FP1. Daniel had a, a DRS issue. Um, then Lando had um, a break-by-wire problem in in qualifying. And actually, Norris was quite optimistic afterwards and felt that if they would had if they could reset the weekend and do it without any problems with the engine he's meant to have, he reckons he could have finished sixth in that race. He, he didn't think he had enough to beat Ocon but I think his suggestion was it would have been closer than it actually ended up being. Yeah, it's an interesting one to consider, particularly as well that he was dealt a five-second penalty for track limits, uh, as were several other drivers, although none of the other ones were in the points. Uh, it always seems to be a talking 
point at the Austrian Grand Prix, although it's unusual we saw so much of it in the race, I guess. That has been a little bit of a new thing. And why don't we wrap it up with that one as well, because it has been one of the, the talking points, I guess, of that weekend, was how much we saw of that during the race. It is... It's always been a bit of a perpetual problem at the Red Bull Ring. I kind of miss the days when the curves would just absolutely grenade the cars because <laughs> I felt like that was a clear and obvious accessible risk your average person could understand, but they moved a little bit away from that for one reason or another. How much of this... I mean, there's also in the background, isn't there, this sort of this, this frisson between the drivers and, and, and race control and the stewards and all that kind of stuff. Is that Should this be interpreted as a chapter in that? Is that just uh, this new race direction being extremely hard on these rules? Why was it it seemed so bad this weekend? Well, I, 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 have, a, I have a long issue with, the, uh, with parts of the FIA and the way they run certain things. I'm very, very, very rarely on their side in certain <laughs> arguments. But with the track limits thing... It's one of the first times this year I've had an element of sympathy for race direction Mm -hmm. because they've been absolutely smashed by the drivers and teams for years on consistency. And last year it was last year was a joke in terms of the way they tried to do it. They, you know, they had all these Mm -hmm. corner by corner rules for track limits and circuit to circuit. It changed and it might have made sense to the drivers and it might have made sense to us from the inside where you're like, well, yeah, okay, it makes sense there because, you know, there's gravel on the exit of the corner, so, or there's grass on the exit of the corner, so I guess it kind of makes sense that that corner is policed by natural track limits, blah, blah, blah. But you're watching it from the outside and you want to make sure that you don't introduce these questionable variables. When you've got a hard and fast rule like a white line, like that's the only thing that F1 has in common with like football or tennis mm. or anything like that. That's the only time where you have a white line that you can actually use. You know, in tennis, I know that people love to get um, angry about uh, marginal calls in every sport, but it's so easy in tennis. Like if it, it, you've got great technology, is there any part of the ball that's on the white line there? No. Okay, it's out. Like it's so easy to mm. do that. And and F1, that track limits are the only way that we can apply that in Formula 1. So at the start of the year, the FIA said, okay, you've been moaning at us for changing everything, not being consistent. From here on, from this season, every single track, every single corner, the white line's the track edge. And everyone, everyone, all the drivers went, brilliant. Now it's all the same. Now we know what the rule are. When we come to the Red Bull ring, where it's actually quicker to go outside of the white line and go over those curbs, because as you said, you know, they don't grenade the cars anymore. You don't just get sent 50 feet up in the air if you hit them. All of a sudden, they're absolutely, you know, absolutely taking the mick with it and and going over the top. And I have some sympathy for the drivers because with these cars in particular, I think visibility is worse than ever. And the you know the the the, the wheels are bigger. You've got the the arch over the co- over the um, over the wheel as well. Judging exactly where you are relative to a white line must be difficult. But is it forty three offences in a single Grand Prix difficult? I don't really know. And what three or four? penalties time penalties so i do have some sympathy for them but this wasn't like the rule changed like mid-weekend or anything like that and once you get these warnings i kind of feel like you know these drivers they the reason they're paid this much money is because they're so good at being so precise so if you've just come through the corner 
I mean, how many times did we hear like Signs or Hamilton moaning, being just like, "No, no way was I off." And it's like, "Well, you were chief because they've literally got video." Like, like, like it's, you can argue all you like, but that you're banged to rights because it's this right there. So, I don't think uh, I don't think the FIA deserved criticism on this at all. I do have some sympathy for the drivers to a to a degree, but only like where you because ultimately, what is it? I think you need to do it four times now to even get yeah. a penalty. Yeah. So, like, come on. If you do it once, that's the whole point. Is that once or twice because it's hard to judge you get away with it but it's because you're repeatedly offending that's why you get a penalty so this one i genuinely thought this was completely separate to all of the nonsense going on around drivers versus the fia at the moment this was just the fia being like well the number of offenses is equal to the number of infringements so (laughs) you've got you've got no complaints and whereas the drivers just Track limits is one of their favourite things to moan about, especially when it hurts them. Yes, I agree. Probably the best use of chief we've ever had on this podcast as well. <laughs> so very well done for that one. To wrap this one up, I just want to go back to where we started. A good race for Ferrari, possibly getting the championship back on track. But of course, uh, the pall of, well, literal smoke hanging over that whole situation is the fire that was in the back of Carlos Sainz's car. What do you What do you think about their championship permutations we're halfway through the season now they've made a very small amount of ground back in the last couple of rounds is it too early for ferrari fans to start feeling more optimistic again uh no no i think they should be more optimistic because i think um i don't really know why i have this rule but in my head like two race wins worth of points is basically that like you're done Mm. that that's it if you're if you go beyond that because then the other car the other driver the other team they just have so much more room to play with. It's a psychological thing as well. And if you go more than 50 points behind, I think that's it. I think you're toast, especially at this point of the season. But that, that gap has been trimmed back rather than, than grown. There are still two races to go before the summer break. It's not impossible, depending on how well the cars work at Paul Ricard and then the Hungara ring. If Leclerc can win both these races, which is a tall order, but if he can, he's only going to be he's going to be, I think, within one race win worth of points of Verstappen, and that Red Bull's not bulletproof. We've seen that there was it was it as recently as um, Canada. Mm. Um, Checo had that problem that's, that that stopped him. There have been these small issues going on for a while as well, with little things breaking, not working as they should. Um, so glass half full. There is a there is a chance. I think if Max had won that race after winning the sprint, I would be sat here probably being a little bit more <laughs> depressed about everything. But I'm uh, I'm trying to be optimistic. I think the one question mark is obviously over reliability in Ferrari, and there's that combination that com- combination effect of you just feel like there's no no guarantee that the Ferrari is going to make the finish of the next couple of races. But they should have a reliability fix soon. They know what their problems are, especially with the V6. Um, but even then, longer term, there's going to be another grid penalty, at least one this season, because of the number of power unit components Leclerc's needed to use so far and how long there is left to go in the season. So you know that at some point in the near future, Charles is going to have to drop more points. And that's obviously a factor to, to, to bring in. But there is thanks to the wonderful way that Formula 1 works now, there are still about 40 races left this season. <laughs> so still plenty of opportunity for, for, for them to come back. The main thing is that Ferrari's basically set the bar now for the level it has to perform at. Like the bare minimum that's acceptable is the Austri- Austrian Grand Prix weekend. Mm-hmm. That That's what you have to do as a team 
to 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 have a, any chance of of this fight. But as I say, any time that Leclerc actually is able to claw points back on Verstappen, and now t- he has done it now two weekends in a row. Obviously, he has had a bit of help at, uh, at Silverstone. There's reason to be optimistic. I know we were joking earlier on that it's done, dusted. Max is on his way to to two world titles, um, but I wouldn't rule it out just yet because Leclerc is um, Leclerc is so up for this fight, and he is such a good driver that there are a few variables that need to play out, and we'll see what Ferrari actually does in terms of whether they stitch him up or not <laughs> uh, again before the end of the season. But um, I I think we can at least be optimistic he's going to be able to give it a go. I certainly hope so. For the sake of the season and those 40 races still to go, certainly it feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? Scott, a real pleasure to chat to you about the Australian Grand Prix. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Cheers. The Austrian Grand Prix was exactly the tonic Ferrari and Leclerc needed after three difficult months. It was a race in which the car was at its best, the strategy calls were on point and the drivers did the business, but it was also a reminder of the still unresolved engine unreliability problems. The championship is moving in the right direction for Ferrari, but that only applies so long as Leclerc at least keeps making it to the flag. And that's still far from a given. Thanks very much to Scott Mitchell for joining me. The Strategy Report is powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcast. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork. And our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato and I'll be back in a couple of weeks to review the French Grand Prix.